thing is, is that um, I think that iron transport and iron and iron regulation may be new to all of you again. But isn't that what you came to school for? To learn new stuff, right? We had a, we had a little bit of this. Um, was it in biochemistry? In biochemistry, yeah. excellent. Okay, and so the the order that courses are now taught to graduate school changed about uh, well, it's two years ago or three years ago maybe. And this course used to teach in the first semester, and biochemistry was in the second one. So now that's I. It's good that I have that reminder. So uh, maybe it's not a bad thing then. You had some uh, discussion of it because uh, part of it being difficult is that you have to even learn all the players. But so from biochemistry you knew about ferritin, tertiaritin. You tried the transferrin receptor, and had, had the con did they cover the concept of why it why iron is so important to control? It's absolutely necessary because all the a lot of the cytochromes and in the mitochondria, our energy, a lot of our enzymes, they need heme groups, and heme groups have at the heart of them the iron. So you need to make sure the enzymes have that, and the reason it's valuable to the enzymes is because it's the reactive center. Iron is highly reactive. You need it, but you can't let that reactivity go around free and uncontrolled because it will destroy the cell. So everywhere that iron needs to go, everywhere it needs to be stored, there's got to be proteins that are doing that. And they must be very tightly regulated. So although we talk about protein synthesis and, and cells growing, protein synthesis requires GTP, 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 GTP. You know, remember, how many of them just in GTPs alone for one amino acid in a protein? Well, that stuff's got to be coming from somewhere, and it's the mitochondria. So protein synthesis is dependent on the mitochondria being functional, which means you have to have iron. You have to have heme groups that have it in there. So um, let's look at a real-life situation. And this, there we go. Uh, of the regulation of iron, all right, through these IRPs. And so there's a ferritin, so now, Maybe I should stop for just a minute and ask if anyone had questions about that regulation system. Alright, so, if you don't have questions, then let me just pose one thing to you. Did you grasp that at the bottom of all this regulation is a sequence in the RNA called the iron responsive element, IRE, and that the position of where that occurs in the messenger RNA determines how that message is regulated. That's how it's done. You have IREs placed in the five prime untranslated portion of a message. That's gonna, if there's something bound to that, then the ribosome can't scan and translation's repressed. So, under conditions where iron is low or high, is regulating what's bound to the IREs. And if it's at the five prime end, then it's going to stop translation unless that protein, the IRP one or two, is 
unbound because it's chosen to buy iron, iron because there's excess iron in the cell. But if it's on the three prime untranslated region of a message, then there will also be RNA degradation signals there. And the IREs are covering them up and keeping them from being recognized. So that message is stable and that protein's made. And then they all get divided into groups of carriers that need to be around to store because ferritin is the large complex of iron storage within the cell. Keep it there and when needed, it can be handed over for a new, uh, the synthesis of a new heme group. Uh, so ferritin is going to be one of those messages that has an IRE at its 5' untranslated region. Whereas the transferrin receptor, well that's out on the surface grabbing iron in the blood and the plasma to bring it in. You only need that if you're low on iron. So the transferrin receptor has those IREs down in the 3' untranslated region. So that was what you, you, know, you had to grapple with for the, um, the pre-study. So now let's look at real life. It turns out ferritin is not a protein. It's a large complex, 24 subunits. Half of them are heavy and half of them are the light subunit. And that's just because one's bigger than the other. <laughs> the big one is heavy and the little one is light. But they must be heterodimers in this huge subunit in order to function, to, to, to keep the free, the free iron in the cell. Uh, so let's look at a, a disease called hyperferritinemia cataract syndrome. Uh, hyperferritinemia. Yeah, emia. <laughs> Don't know how they put the emia on the end. But of course, the hyper means too much ferritin. Um, or actually, I think what it did end up meaning is something different than that, and that may be what the emia is. So these folks get cataracts. They get cataracts as infants. So it's caused by a mutation that reduces the IRP binding affinity for the IRE in the 5' untranslated of ferritin L messenger R, the light chain. So there's two, two chains, two genes, a heavy, heavy ferritin gene and a light ferritin gene. And this, what we're going to look at is when there's a mutation in this. Now, if the IRP binding affinity is reduced, where do you think the mutation is? particular sequence in the 5' end? The untranslated region, yes. And what part of that untranslated region? Well, what does the IRP bind? The AGU? Uh, no. It's going to bind the... The iron response element. So, that reduced binding results from a mutation in the iron response element itself. And this disease helped us understand the range of binding that can occur. It's autosomal dominant, and
And that means that one, it's, it is on an autosome. The, the light chain is on, a, a, on one of the autosomes, not, not X or Y. And if you have it in one copy, you're affected. And basically small cataracts at birth and blind in childless. Yeah? Did you say it was mutated in the IRP or the IRE? IRE. And yes, you're right. P-E. I-R-E itself, yes. Now, it could, there might be someone who had a mutation in the IRP. Would you expect, oh, this That's important. 
And it turned out that it was already known from just doing mutagenesis analysis of IREs to see what mattered and what didn't, that at the base of the loop of the IRE, remember that's a stem loop structure, at the base of that, there was the, the, the plus 39 was a seismic. And if you deleted it, then the uh, IRP didn't recognize that IRA block. Then the positive controls the wildlife IRA. Oh, oops, sorry, went back. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a bit faint. Can you see it in the back as well, too? No, sorry. Even me. It's so funny, it looks so good on a computer screen, too. Uh, but there it is. This is, a, uh, this is the real IRE from L-ferritin. And that you, you wouldn't need to see these nucleotides anyway, but that cytosine is down here. And you can see that it's rather a long stem loop. So now you see these things are much longer stem loops than you would see in something like uh, microRNAs stem loops. So clearly, Pasha would never recognize this. It's too long. But IRPs do. And now, if they look at that sequence, and they make these short RNAs from the control, these two controls, and from patients, now they can do electrophoretic mobility shifts. And this is showing you, so now this disease is, is in a number of countries, so you're going to see they gather mutations from Heidelberg, which is in Germany, and from Badalona, which is in um, Spain. And now they're doing the electrical mobility shift, and yeah, that's light too, isn't it? So this is free probe, that's the free probe plane control. And uh, then this is the positive control, which is that RNA that's the wild type sequence of the uh, ferritin light chain IRE. And you can see the shift up of the free, the radioactivity of the free probe shifts up because the size is increased by the IRP1 binding. So when they did this assay, they had to have purified IRP, right? Yeah, because you put in purified protein. And then they had that synthetic RNA, which was radioactively labeled. So now they come in and they do the same assay with this uh, Del 39 and the shift is lost because the, the uh, IRP doesn't recognize it anymore. And again, that was not naturally occurring. That was something that um, they found by mutagenesis before they even did the study. And now they come in with the Badalona patient and you can see that there is a reduced amount of IRP. And this was the first that they could figure out. So they, they, knew, they had found the mutation, and now they're trying to figure out why it causes this problem. And so they can immediately see that the quantity is less, uh, that is shifted up. And it's less in the Heidelberg mutation as well, too. Now they, here, they added that delta um, 39 to it and it loses it completely and then this is something that I never quite understood from this paper but they also add the Delta 39 to the Heidelberg and it doesn't cause a complete loss it's maybe a little bit reduced but um, at any rate I can't explain that quite to you and in the paper they don't actually directly address it so. 
Now here they're just quantifying that. So they do they do five electrophoretic mobility shifts and they quantify the intensity here and here and compare it and this is a graph of it. So you can see the large reduction in the binding of IRP1 to the IRE from the patients. So now their clue was that mutation is decreasing the, the binding of IRP to it. But if you're going to publish that and have a true understanding, you need to accurately measure the affinity of IRP for that um, one. So now they did this really great thing, and not only is this a good example for this, but this was like one of the first papers I ever saw where they, these people were really very smart about how they use that EMSA assay. So now they realize they could actually maybe quantify the differences using EMSA. And so what they do is now here unlabeled competitors. So they have right here increasing amounts. You know when you see that, that means it's an increasing amount. So the unlabeled competitors, well, it's just the sequence, but there's no radioactive label on it. And the more you have of the one that isn't radioactively labeled, the more chance there is that the IRP will bind to it instead. And that, that means literally that while the total amount of actual protein and RNA that is in this position in every lane is the same, less and less of it was radioactive. Because more and more of it was unlabeled. And that's how you get the decrease. It's not that there's, there is, you know, if you did, could turn this into a western blot in which you probe for IRP, the intensity in line 2 would be greater, but 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 would, should have the same intensity of IRP1. But of the labeled probe, which was in decreasing concentration, you see it descending. All right. And this is, this is, oh, sorry, this is the wild type control. All right. So now they take their negative control, uh, which is a, uh, this is an IRP with that del C deletion. And, um, but this is what they're competing with. So the IRE that's labeled is still wild type but they're competing with the defective binding and showing that, in fact, their competition actually works because if you have one that doesn't bind the IRP at all, it doesn't matter how much of it you have. Now they come in with the patient IRE as the competitor. And remember, the probe is always wild type here. So the probe is always a wild type IRE. And what you see is that while the reduction by lane five is is almost is, it's almost gone by like seventy five percent eighty percent of it has been competed out when you have labeled wild type and you're competing with wild type but now if you have labeled wild type and you're competing with the patient's IRE you don't get that much reduction until a later point so it actually takes more of it to compete, and that's showing an affinity difference. 
And here is, the, now they're introducing a patient from Italy, Milano, and that patient's, yeah, what's going on with that patient's IRE? Is it competing well at all? Yeah, no, not even. For those of you who are, who are looking down and can't hear the heads shaking, <laughs> yes, it's unable to compete almost at all. You have to have a huge amount of it to get any significant reduction. So the mutation they found in this patient was actually an even lower affinity. And now they can do the, the Heidelberg, Germany, and the Torino, which is also in Italy, mutations. And indeed, the Heidelberg, while it's better than the Milano mutation, it's still more severe in reducing the binding of IRP to it than was the Badalona or the Torino mutation. So for the first time ever, they were actually able to rank the affinity of these. And they wanted to do it because they knew the severity of the disease, the cataracts in each child. And if you want to prove that this is what's causing the disease, then you have to show that specific mutations relate to the, the severity of the disease. So then they graphed this, and once they graphed it, here's the uh, here's the log signal in the lane, which is here would be. Um, that's that control right here, didn't change it at all. And down here is the wild type. And then this one turned out to be the Badalona mutation. And here you see that Heidelberg and Torino. And here you see the mutation that was in the Milano patient. So they were able to stack and show graphically the expected severity of each mutation. And now, how does, so then the, the question is, from what you know about this, what would be expected to occur in these? So here's that ferritin light chain. Its IRE is in the 5' untranslated region. And when iron is high, this is, this iron is going to bind to the IRP, and then IRP doesn't bind to IREs. So it's free from the message. But when iron is low, then the IRP doesn't have any free iron bind to it, and it's going to bind to this message and repress L-ferritin. But if iron's low in the cell, why do you need ferritin? So try and get you to think about it. This system works. If iron's low in the cell, you don't need ferritin because it's a storage molecule. All right, so if there's a mutation here and here, then the balance of this and its sensitivity to the iron concentration is gone. But where would it matter? So here's the question that I want you to think about for just a minute, and I'll give you time. Where would it matter the most that these patients have reduced affinity of the IRP for the IRE in alferritin? Under high iron or under low iron? <clears throat> if 
If the affinity is lessened, I iron or low iron, and the affinity is lessened only for the I or E, not for iron. The low iron? Yes. And as a result, what will happen in a cell at low iron? It'll still have ferritin being produced when you don't need it. It'll have ferritin produced when you don't need it. Hyperferritin. in the lenses. And this happens in old age, 
I got the bad news from my ophthalmologist a couple of months ago. I've got, I've got cataracts starting in my left eye. Um, so, you know, but it's so small, only my ophthalmologist can see it, and it's probably going to be about eight years before it really gets to be a problem for me, because they grow really slowly. But it's a natural phenomenon, and it's from the decrystallization of this crystalline. Well, what happens in these infants is their crystals never form perfectly. That's why they're born with the cataracts, because all that L-ferritin is in there crystallizing, and it disturbs the continuity of the true crystal that's supposed to be there. Notice that even you can see this marked star, which is characteristic of this disease, but the entire lens is cloudy blue. Uh, has anybody had a wonderful dog that stayed with you for four, 14 years, 12, 14 years? They always get cataracts. And you, then do you recognize this then, that cloudy blue in their eyes that tells you your dog has cataracts? Yeah. All right. So, and then here is, this is, this is the eye up close, and there's the child um, from a distance as well. Too. Now, finding the cause of a disease why it happens is the first thing. One always hopes that somewhere in the answer there's a cure indicated. But this is very recent and we're not, it's, it's not certain what we'll do. And, um, you know, the only cure we have for cataracts that come in old age is to replace your lens. So that's what's done for these children as well, too. So they don't have any symptoms from having low iron? That doesn't affect their amount of iron? So, um, that is open to question. So, children that go blind like this, unless they're born to a well-to-do family, they don't have a very good lifespan anyway. Just because if you're blind and you're poor, and you live in a poor country, then you're not going to live the natural lifespan that we do. So, the experience with these children isn't that great. But I think that that's going to be changing now, and that's open to, I think that it will cause other problems as well too. And just the most obvious always going to be the first thing that they're born with that causes a problem. Yeah, but I don't think they have, they, they must have other problems as well too. Okay, so um, are you ready for the exam questions on mTOR? <laughs> components. What components are the same in all cell types and what components vary? from cell type to cell type. So I thought I'd just go through. So this is going to serve as sort of a review as well, too, because we, we have the opportunity. Maybe I should stop for a minute before I speed through this. Now that you've seen uh, an example of how, you, how people do experimentation with the iron responsive elements and looking at that, do you um, have any questions about that system? You know, so if you were given a new gene that you've never heard of before and told that it had an IRP in the 5' untranslated, or told that it had a, the I, the, sorry, IRE in the 5' untranslated, or told that it had it in the 3' untranslated, you know how it was regulated in high or low iron, right? Yeah. You don't even need to know what the gene itself does. It's just all about where the IRE is located. Okay, well let's move on to mTOR then. So here's those epithelial cells. And um, 
I'm going to give you an example just to go through it. I thought that um, maybe just going through some different cell types and different diagrams that you would help you be able to spot stuff. And so, again, as I had said at some point, I think it was maybe Tuesday, that in this field, as one of the few signaling fields that I've ever seen where there's so much variability in what they show and the things that they simply seem to leave out. <laughs> and also things that they get wrong, like labeling mTOR mTOR1 when Raptor is there separately labeled. So, you know, um, little mistakes like that, <laughs> which reviewers and editors should have caught, but they don't. <coughs> um, so, and, and it's not about trying to find everybody's mistake, it's just about not being misled yourself, as you, because this is a very big topic, and it's not going away, it's just a really big player. Oh, I guess I should say this, maybe, to make, why am I putting so much emphasis on this? Well, because it's, it's an extremely hot topic, you can get a lot of money, from NIH if you're working on mTOR. So there's a shift in the field to work on it. And why is NIH driving that? Because it's long been a goal to find the silver bullet for cancer treatment. Antibiotics are the silver treatment, silver bullet treatment for uh, bacterial disease. So the silver bullet for cancer would be a drug or group of drugs which work against many, many cancers and work well. That has been looked at over and over and over again, and over and over again we get cancer-specific treatments. But mTOR is the first opportunity that they've seen where it's required in all the cancer cells. And if we could find a drug that targets mTOR, very specifically, then it would, it might well be the silver bullet for cancer. As we talk about this, then I'm going to add, well, why not use rapamycin or the sirolimus, everolimus, uh, commercial trade names for that. They tried. They have terrible side effects. Is the problem. Because there's too many, probably because there's too many cells in your body that need to have constant growth, mucosal membranes. You know, you turn over the cells in your mouth, for instance, very, very rapidly. Every time you eat, you shave off like three layers of, <laughs> of cells. You better replace them before you eat again. So, and, and what happens to patients who take these drugs is they have mouth sores. And they, I, I went on when I first started thinking about teaching this onto blogs, patient blogs. It's unbelievable. You read the literature that's scientific, and they say there's mouth sores as a side effect. And they admit that most people have it. But you go on the patient blogs, and they talk about how horrible they are. And patients who know that if they stop taking this drug, they are going to die in a couple of weeks from their cancer, stop because it's just too horrible. So we do want to go after that. but. Everly, going after it with rapamycin analogs is not going to work because of the side effects. Now, the paper we did yesterday where they're developing ink 128, do you understand why that paper made it into nature? That was a drug that might be a candidate. It's still a long way from the pipeline, but that's what they're working towards. 
Okay, so if you look at the epithelial cells of the oral mucosa, they have epidermal growth factor receptors, they have TGF alpha receptors, and these are receptor tyrosine kinases. When they bind their growth factor, they signal, ah, so now recognize PI3 kinase, AKT, and mTOR, signaling down to mTOR. And it's kind of vague here, though, because it's got other things signaling, too. And then there's the signal which goes through RAS, RAS, MEC, and ERK. But I've noticed one thing that only Ruggiero really understood the importance of. Uh, he did the review that I got on my study, in the, you know, the cell studies and those diagrams that I animated. That was from one of Ruggiero's reviews. The paper yesterday was Ruggiero. David Ruggiero is really a, a very... Um, strong leader in this field. I uh, wouldn't say that he's right about everything, but he's pretty darn good. Uh, and so you see that Nick is lacking from this, but if you activate RAS, RAS is going to phosphorylate Nick. So sometimes you're going to have to fill in things that they left out, because this diagram was in a paper for a reason, and they're not interested in Nick. So they didn't add it. Doesn't mean it's not there, just means they weren't focusing on that. They were much more focusing on this pathway. And then in these studies, as you read about the future, they're, they're thinking they need to hit this pathway, and that it's possible because it turns out there are already specific inhibitors for MAC. <coughs> uh, by the way, I, I, just in case you, you guys don't know it, RAS is not a single protein. RAS is a gene family. They just use RAS, and any particular cell may have one or the other gene family. Uh, RAF is a gene family as well, too. Uh, MEC, however, when you get down to the level of MEC and ERK, those are smaller gene families and they're the same in virtually every cell. So there's basically MEC1 and MEC2. Uh, again, I would never ask you that on an exam. The reason I mention it now is because when you look at different uh, diagrams, you'll see that they actually might say MEC1, MEC2. Um, and you know, just don't let it confuse you. Everybody's talking about the same proteins. And some diagrams are more general and some are more specific. So here we have the fact that these epithelial cells of the oral mucosa depend on mTOR for their cell proliferation there, uh, and not, well then, if they become cancer cells, they would depend on it for their migration adherence and, and invasion. But if they're normal mucosal epithelial cells, they won't be migrating. So we, these inhibitors of mTOR are delivered to the patients. It's an oral formulation, and so they, uh, you know, they get it in their tissues, but before it goes into their tissues, they, they pass it through their mouth. Um, so one of the things that was on the patient's blog was huge tricks to swallow a pill without ever letting it come, come in contact with any of the oral cavity. And patients report that those techniques work <coughs> to reduce the mouth sores. They figured it out themselves. All right, so let's look at the, the kidney. Well, the kidney has proximal tubule cells and glomerular epithelial cells. They express the EGF receptor and ANG2, which is the angiotensin receptor. And this is all about uh, regulating the function of these, signaling between these two. And you can see that epidermal growth factor here is leading to the PI3 kinase, the AKT, 
the mTOR. And then for reasons that have to do with why this paper wanted what it was dealing with, it leaves out completely mTOR's effect on which protein? What, yeah. what branch? Yeah, yeah, BP. Or BP. That doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's just this paper was not focused on that. This paper was focused on mTOR signaling through the S6 kinase. And then over here, this is, this is a surrogate for signaling through that same pathway right here, just getting much more specific and talking about some things that are specific to this cell type. So the goal here is that you become familiar with and at ease with all these diagrams of mTOR signaling pathways. And the key is not to get too bogged down in the details unless you need to, and to just be able to quickly spot the key players, whether they're being emphasized or not. Alright, so um, global regulation. Let's look now at a specific example. So, blood vessels. Blood vessels, uh, the walls of blood vessels are made up of vascular endothelial cells, and around them are smooth muscle cells. And the smooth muscle cells roll, the vascular endothelial cells roll, well, of course, that's the wall of the vessel. But the smooth muscle that's out around it is there to contract or dilate. The vessel. So we're not talking about capillaries, we're talking about vessels. So when you look at a cell like that, here's the plasma membrane, and it's going to have receptors for vascular endothelial cell growth factor, which here looks like a little green nut. <laughs> they got that, so it reminds me of some kind of squashed acorn. Or, oh no, it's a pistachio! <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I was looking at it as a walnut but, or an acorn or something, but clearly it's a pistachio. So uh, VEGF is, looks like a pistachio. <laughs> uh, and then there's a receptor for it, vascular endothelial growth factor receptor. And there's, a, there's two of them. There's a one and a two. I don't know the difference. You know, I don't know why uh, vascular, the blood vessels, they're showing it as having only this receptor. But so it's going to bind that growth factor. And then this is a receptor tyrosine kinase. So maybe it's a little hard to follow because that's not a clear color distinction. But you can see that the main chain of that receptor is coming down here. And then it has domains down here that are the tyrosine kinase domains for the signaling. They've been highly emphasized here. And oh, signaling by VEGF leading to PI3 kinase, leading to AKT leading to mTOR. And I like these people because they went straight to the money, protein translation for once, instead of, you know, vaguely beating around the bush. No. And MYC is here being represented too, though not actually shown, because here's RAS being activated down to June kinase, but, but RAS activation down through here is also activating MYC. And MYC is coming in as the transcription factor that's going to upregulate all those ribosomal genes, the, the elongation, the initiation factors, and it's an, a very important part of, of making sure there's enough translation apparatus. So mTOR is going to free up EIF4B. But 
of EIF4E, but if there's not enough ribosomes around to translate all that message, then it's not going to work very well. So CMIT's going to come in and increase the numbers of ribosomes and activate them. So the vascular endothelial cells are very dependent on this pathway. In a cancer cell, well, cancer cells grow, and we're mainly we're talking about solid tumors, not leukemias and lymphomas that are circulating blood uh, tumors. So we're talking about solid tumors. Well, as they grow bigger, they basically need to get nutrition, but they don't have a blood supply. So almost all solid tumors uh, secrete a lot of VEGF. They turn on the VEGF gene, so they secrete that. And that stimulates the growth of nearby blood vessels in the normal tissue, causing blood vessels to grow out into the tumor where they normally would not grow. And that's a simplified version of it. It's not. There's a little more. There's TGF betas in, in the action too. But but at the heart of it, you couldn't do what's what the uh, regrow the blood vessels unless you had VEGF and the signaling pathway. So there's a signaling pathway, and so this is not a cancer cell. This is still, this is still a normal vascular endothelial cell nearby, but this one has a tumor growing next to it, and that tumor is secreting large and continuous amounts of VEGF. So what happens in this tumor cell, uh, oops, sorry, in, in this uh, endothelial cell is that it just keeps growing and growing and growing and it supplies nutrients and oxygen and all the things that the tumor cells need to stay alive. So one of the things that people are trying to do is to develop drugs that attack this and so there's an antibody that recognizes VEGF and it'll basically bind it up. And all of these are inhibitors along the pathway. But you don't, you don't have to know that for the exam. Because the thing that I want you to see is that in addition, there's a large effort in trying to find drugs that will inhibit mTOR. And that would cut off the cancer cell's blood supply. In addition, to causing the tumor cells themselves to be unable to grow or to grow more slowly. What I'd like you to think about now that really relates to the class is, bless you, when you treat a patient, and they have, when you treat a patient with an mTOR inhibitor, I told you they get mouse sores, and then you see how the oral mucosa has the mTOR pathway and it needs to turn over at high rates. But blood vessels, well, if you're treating an adult cancer patient, you, their blood vessels are already there, right? They don't need to grow, right? So any effect that this might have on the normal blood vessels that already exist servicing the normal tissue, could be a problem in general, and they weren't expecting it. But it turns out that we forget. On a daily basis, we move around, we're active, we fall, we nick ourselves with a piece of paper, we cut ourselves while preparing food, we cut our
ourselves while opening this, that, or the other. And then we need endothelial cell growth. And so patients who are taking these drugs also report uh, they have problems with bleeding incidents. Uh, they're, not, they're not as able to uh, repair their blood vessels as they should be. Um, so I'm, not, I'm not sure, but I haven't been able to find anything that's, that's indicating that a patient has to be taken off these drugs because of that. The mouth sore incidents, yes, but I don't know about the, uh, if the bleeding ever gets so bad you'd have to withdraw a drug from that. So uh, now let's look at, I think this may be the last thing in here. So uh, let's look at mTOR in T cells. Now that was something that we just sort of briefly went through on Tuesday. I'd like to go through it a little more. What did I do here? Sorry. Okay. So here's the here's the pathways. Oh my gosh, is that not a mess? <laughs> this is like a labyrinth, a maze. And isn't immunology already really hard? Yeah. <laughs> I will openly admit, immunology. You know, when I came here to interview for a job, they have you, after you've given your talk, you sit down in front of the whole faculty as the candidate, and it's kind of a little meeting, and they all field questions to you. And so they ask you, you know, how would you feel about moving to Memphis, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they also, the faculty that were going to vote on whether I get hired or not were interested in whether or not I'd be a good teacher, because they want me to take some of their teaching load away. <laughs> right? So I got the question, is, is there... Do you feel prepared to teach anything? And, uh, you know, of course, I, I'm sitting there saying, yeah, you're going to dump the worst teaching on me. You are. <laughs> so I said, uh, well, I feel comfortable teaching genetics, biochemistry, molecular biology, list went on and on. And then I stopped and I said, but I'm not going to be one who can teach you anymore. You know, I'm in the micro, microbiology, immunology, and biochemistry department. <laughs> and I meant it, too. I should never be dependent on to teach immunology. So here's the, a main player in T-cells, the T-cell receptor. And a lot of the function of a T-cell, specifically helper T-cells and, uh, and cytotoxic T-cells, is that they're waiting around to encounter a stimulation to be to go ahead and proliferate because they're needed. So they do that through the T cell receptor, which is going to recognize an antigen being displayed on a major histocompatibility molecule on some cell. And if that antigen is an antigen that's foreign, then that will signal with the T cell receptor. And let's see where that signal goes. All right, so it went to, down to transcription. And you don't really need to know what that's doing so much as, you know, it went down to transcription and all these players in between, you may hear of them in the future when you take immunology, or if you, have, if you do indeed. But the bottom line is, is that it causes transcription and translation of the cytokine interleukin-2. And interleukin-2 receptor is CD25, a receptor tyrosine kinase. So this is an interesting example 
where the growth factor is not coming out of the blood plasma from other cells or from an endocrine gland. The growth factor is actually being made by the cell itself that starts the signaling to the tyrosine kinase. But after that, you're looking at the same story. Receptor tyrosine kinase coming down to mTOR. Boy, they sure shortcutted that, didn't they? <laughs> Let's get up. Well, they did put PI3 kinase, <laughs> but they left out AKT. And now they've got mTOR going to EIF4E. They're not very specific about that, but they do come up with, and, and this, I'm not sure what that is, but I think that's indicating it's in complex. I don't know what those initials stand for, but that's indicating that it's in the complex with the uh, 4E binding proteins. And now the 4E binding proteins have been phosphorylated and they're released in and here is uh, the free EIF4E, which gives messenger RNA translation and protein synthesis. But the immunologists also are apparently very keenly aware of the other branch of mTOR, who S6 acting on making the ribosomes more active to increase protein synthesis. And they also know how important signaling to RAS to phosphorylate CMIC is. So I added the CMIC part myself. Yes? So is it fair to say that um, the intracellular signaling components like the mTOR and the AKT and RAF and RAS and MEC are consistent in all cell types and it's the means of signaling them that varies in cell types? Is that fair? Yes. That's it in a nutshell. I will make one, I guess there's one more thing to fine tune in. Some cells don't make, don't have, have RAS. They start with RAF, but that's it. But if you, you know, if you know that it's RAS, RAF is essentially a, a surrogate for RAS. And they are related, actually. But that's it. Great. At some point, hopefully you got bored. Did you? Will you show me another mTOR diagram? I'm leaving. That was sort of the goal. Because you're <laughs> never at ease with something. You're never secure that you know it until you get tired of seeing it. Because every time it comes up, you know what it is. So just a, a point here. They are so now trying to treat. Um, so this is, a, this is an issue uh, for organ transplant where you actually have to immune suppress a patient. So uh, for organ transplant patients, you're going to use calcineurin inhibitors so that you can stop the T-cell signaling right here. But calcineurin inhibitors, it's nice not to have to use them at such high doses, but you can only do that if you combine it with something. And so the latest thing that really works great is to use sirolimus, the rapamycin trade name, uh, in combination with calcineurin inhibitors and now, plus the mTOR inhibitors, and now you have this, this treatment. And actually, for renal transplants, the, what the literature is saying, and I checked a bunch of sites that should know what they're talking about, is that when you have a renal transplant patient, um, they actually are only using the mTOR inhibitors. But for uh, heart transplants, lung transplants, 
other types of transplants, they are using combinations of this. And maybe someday they'll switch over just to this. But as with the cancer patients, they <coughs> do uh, complain of mouth sores and bleeding episodes. Yeah? That varies a lot. Uh, yeah, so I, it's, it's always hard for me to know. I can read, but I don't, unlike cancer, where I actually meet with tumor boards and cancer doctors, with the transplant people, I don't meet. And it's really interesting how it can be very difficult to see what the everyday doctor does. So what are you typically doing? So everybody knows Jeff is a farm D, so he actually is, is, has treated patients with various stuff, and he's going to get a PhD. Yay! <laughs> so transplant centers, every center does whatever paper they believe in. There's, there's not conclusive data, so there may be three different strategies that are utilized widely for renal transplant patients, and you go across the U.S., it'll be one of those three, but differentiating between is, is kind of center to center and where they train and what they're comfortable with. And the, are they using, because I know that they used to use cyclosporin, right? So we still do. And they still do, right. But do you see any use of these mTOR inhibitors in, in this area? Sure. Um, mTOR inhibitors, I mean, serolimus and trichrolimus, which is another calcineurin inhibitor, are very closely... Oh, that's related. how you pronounce them, huh? <laughs> I had to base my pronunciation on Wikipedia's, you know, and it's, you know, it's kind of hard. <laughs> so we have uh, trichrolimus and cyclosporin, which are the calcineurin inhibitors we use, and serolimus is actually very closely related to trichrolimus. They're both macrolides. Yes. Um, actually related to the antibiotics, but have a higher affinity. Rapamycin is a macrolide. Yeah, lots of things are macrolides. Um, it's a very basic description. But uh, in general, we use mTOR inhibitors plus calcineurin inhibitors plus a steroid, usually prednisone, in a lot of transplant patients still. Uh, depending on specifically what kind of transplant, you'll renal transplant, I believe you see more of the mTOR inhibitors than some of the other transplant patients. That's what I gathered. The yeah. renal transplant people are shifting very rapidly to liking these mTOR I, inhibitors. I want to say it was lung transplants that actually were shown to be detrimental, so it's kind of mm -hmm. shifts back and forth on what so transplant. So the tissue maybe, what type of tissue you have, maybe the mTOR inhibitors cause more or less side effects. And you also see a lot of them in uh, some centers that do uh, bone marrow transplants, depending on what type of uh, cancer is the underlying cause. And actually, the adverse effects, the, the stomatitis or stomatitis, that one I don't know from mouse is much less in transplant patients, and they're not sure why, but it appears they're, they're assuming it has to do with the immunosuppression that they're on, that the oncology patients aren't on concurrently. Yeah. But they're not really sure. And what you would never give the immunosuppressant to the oncology patients. Not typically, no. Um, you need their immune system to keep working. But the, the mouth sores aren't associated with actual contact with the mouth because there's Temserolimus, which is IV only, and it has 44% of patients reporting. So, some. as I said with the blog, the other thing to keep in mind with patients who come up with ways to um, take the oral pills but not have them in the oral cavity, it is quite possible that's totally placebo. It is. And you know what? Who cares? <laughs> if you have less mouth sores, who cares? Thank you, Jeff. All right, that was it. <laughs> And we did, isn't that great? Finally, Dr. Alt.
the uh, polio virus and how it sh shuts down. General translation. Do you have any questions on that? And also on the diphtheria. Oh yeah, I did want to. Uh, yeah, just a second. I keep going with that. Um, so with the diphtheria story, any questions on that? Okay, so everybody here been vaccinated with DPT? Probably as a child, if not. I think we're going to get it redone before we can start school. I, I was going to say, and I think you have to have a booster redone to come to this health swagger. That's right. Yeah, so the, the D, it's diphtheria, pertussis. Oh, <laughs> Uh, I guess that's just what they call me. Maybe at this reaction site, at the site of injection. Yeah. The the T that has is pretty bad. Like, that's uh, what I was Soreness associated yeah. with the new one. So diphtheria, we need to get vaccinated against it. Uh, a vaccine. How nice. Well, you know that vaccine is what's called a subunit vaccine. It's the kind of vaccine we'd always like to make. Um, because it means that there's that vaccine consists of just one protein from the pathogen, which to which forces our immune system. It gives our immune system only one target. You put in an entire organism, there's a lot of targets, and maybe some of them are going to be really protective. But now you give a subunit, and there's only one target. The immune system is going to react to that. That protein is the diphtheria toxin. So in that vaccine is an inactivated form of the diphtheria toxin. Vaccine works. The reason it works is because diphtheria is only a pathogen because of that toxin. If you're vaccinated, you develop antibody that recognizes immediately the toxin, clears it, and inactivates it. It never has a chance to get into cells when you, if you are infected with diphtheria. So you don't get sick. And that's all we care about, right? <laughs> we only care if you get sick. In terms of what that means, in our population, it means that any one of us right now could be infected with diphtheria. We're just not sick because we're all immune to the toxin, which makes it pathogenic. And in fact, people do routinely get infected with diphtheria. They don't get sick, but they pass it on. So it is in extremely important to continue to vaccinate and to vaccinate all. And every few years, we have incidents that remind us of how important that is. About five years ago, in Florida, there was a community of people who had come together because they didn't believe in vaccination. And some because of religious reasons, and others because they feared the, the suspected but not proven and, and actually always disproven connection between autism 
assassination. So they had a community in and of themselves with their own schools because our real um, ability to enforce vaccination is you can't get in the first grade. You can't get in kindergarten unless you've had a full set of vaccinations. Prior to that, you try to pick up people by whatever you can, but there's no enforcement means to do it. However, if you have your own school system and your school system does not require vaccination for kids to go in, then you don't. And that community had an outbreak of diphtheria. None of their children were vaccinated. 20 plus children got infected. After three died of diphtheria, the state of Florida moved in. They took custody of all the children in that community and they forcefully vaccinated. It was in the common interest and it was to protect the kids. So diphtheria is out there. And any individual who's not vaccinated can contract it and they will get sick. But any individual that isn't will simply be a carrier. Uh, last year in California, three children, now no one died because they caught it quickly. Uh, three children were diagnosed with diphtheria. And they were below school age, so the school system hadn't caught them yet. Um, but they had not been vaccinated. And it turned out their parents were just afraid of vaccination. So the diphtheria vaccine is a wonderful thing, but if you understand how that toxin works, it is the only pathogenic thing, then our vaccination is not actually against being infected by the virus. It's only against the toxin. There's actually several other um, bacterial Toxin subunit uh, vaccines as well, too. Well, we wish we could get one against cholera, but um, that subunit hasn't worked yet. So, it's just a toxin. I think it's because there's something, it's not the only pathogenic thing that uh, cholera has. Okay, um, on the exam with respect to the, the polio virus and the diphtheria, one of the reasons I really didn't go over it that much is because basically that's multiple choice. Uh, questions with the same list of where it inhibits and why and you just need to recognize it. So it's, you know, sometimes you have to do some memorization. Yeah? Well, the paper that we discussed Oh, that's a good question. A few people asked it uh, that were around at the end. Uh, no, yesterday's question was, yesterday's material, the actual stuff in the paper was worth 10 points and you already did that. So there will be no questions on that paper on the exam. Uh, I don't, you know, yeah, that's a good question. I don't, that's true for all your discussions, right? Or maybe not? It depends on the person leading their session, however they want to do it. That's good um, questions Well, I can see, you know, it was a challenge because uh, this is a bigger class than usual because if you're going to give 10 points, you have to give everybody a well, they get points for the discussion, and then they can still ask questions if they think their paper is more relevant to what's going on in the field than the material they. Yeah. There's plenty to ask on the mentor. I don't need to ask it on that paper. <laughs> okay. Well, have a nice day. Y'all get out of the cold room. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah.
Typhoid fever? Yeah, typhoid fever. No, because you're 